We are in the high point of the Christian season, the Holy Week of Jesus and his passion. And we have just heard read from the Gospel of Matthew uh, an account of that week, and what took place as he entered Jerusalem on that first Palm Sunday. But we're studying Psalm chapter 119. And so we've got the task of figuring out how the triumphal entry connects to Psalm 119, verses 22 through 24. So let me read for you that uh, passage, Psalm 119, verses 22 through 24, and then we'll trust, see if the Holy Spirit can guide us through this text for the glory of God. Psalm 119, verse 22. Take away from me scorn and contempt, for I have kept your testimonies, even though princes sit plotting against me, your servant will meditate on your statutes. Your testimonies are my delight. They are my counselors. Of course, this week uh, marks the celebration in the church of the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. It was a week that began very well for Jesus and his followers. I mean, if there was ever a time of anticipation, it was that time, that day, when Jesus entered in Jerusalem, assumingly as a conquering king. He was riding on a donkey. He had people laying down palm branches in front of him and shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed be the son of David, who was, of course, the forecasted Messiah. But just in a few short days, Jesus went from being a royal hero to being rejected hated, mistreated, and even killed. Jesus endured scorn and contempt during most of his ministry, but no more so than on this week, the week of his passion. Christian life, which is reflected in Psalm 119, is a, supposed to be patterned after the life of Christ. Uh, being like Jesus includes experiences that he went through. Jesus was scorned and held in contempt, and if we follow him, that will probably be the case with us. Jesus endured many things um, that uh, were very difficult, that many of us, if not all of us, will never have to deal with. He was the object of evil plots of his religious leaders. If we follow Christ, we may have to endure the same thing. So what we have here is we have a Savior who walked before us the path that he has called us to walk. We have a Savior who has promised to be with us as we walk that path and a, and a word from that Savior to encourage us along the way. Listen to these words from Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15. For we do not have a high priest, referring to Jesus Christ, who is unable to sympathize with our weakness. No, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. He has been down this path. You know, we, we endure different kinds of challenges and trials in the, in the Christian life for one reason or another. But we have a Savior who's walked before us in these things. The verses in Psalm 119 that are before us today, I think, will help us understand what it means to face trials for being Christ-like, trials for pursuing holiness, and also how to deal with those trials. In the challenges that, that we will inevitably face if we follow Christ, we have a Savior who is alive and well, and that's good news for us. 
and one who has promised to be with us to the end of the age. He will never leave us. So let's dive into the text, Psalm 119, verses 22 through 24. And I want to I help you see how this text, I think, helps us better understand um, Holy Week, the uh, triumphal entry and the, and the things that ensued. So my first point here, I want, you to, I want you to see the opposition and sojourner. If you're going to be a sojourner, we've been talking about that here for the past few weeks. If you're going to be a sojourner, one who, who views his, his life here on this planet as temporary, you're going to encounter some challenging things. You're going to encounter some difficulty, some opposition. And what we see here in, in Psalm 119, verses 22 through 24, is scorn, contempt, alienation, uh, uh, antagonism, things like this, and they would all fall under the umbrella of opposition. Um, when, when people look down on you and speak slanderously about you for no reason, you can begin to understand a little bit about what Jesus might have been going through in the days leading up to his crucifixion. We're in the third stanza, the Gimel stanza of Psalm 119, and this stanza and the next, Gimel and Daleth, are stanzas that reveal the difficulty of the pursuit of holiness. As Christians, we claim to desire holiness, we claim a desire to be like Christ, and if we do so, then we might wanna know what it is that there is in store for us. And these verses show us. They show us the challenge of having a sojourner's mentality. They show us the, the difficulty of following Jesus. So, as we begin, I want you to realize that we have an opposition, an opposition versus Christianity as a whole. Uh, certainly we have opposition individually, but uh, Christianity is opposed by the world as a whole. Uh, and, and the reason for this opposition is, I think, easy to understand. Uh, Christianity makes some wild and presumptuous claims, don't they? Uh, Christianity claims to have the exclusive path to heaven, the only way to God. That's offensive. Uh, to hold, the Christianity claims to hold the only solution to man's sin problem and the impending judgment. Christianity claims to be the only source of truth. And so if you're on the outside looking in at Christianity, you may have some concerns as well. Uh, we, who claim Christ, have been accused of being arrogant and narrow-minded uh, to claim such things, but that, in fact, is what the Bible tells us is the truth. And so the world is quick to, him, to, to come to the place of, of condemnation, of, of contempt towards those who claim such things. Uh, and yet the world is quick to embrace a religion that doesn't. The world has no difficulty with religions that don't claim exclusivity to God at all. They're tolerant of almost any world religion except Christianity because of what we claim. The reason for the world's rejection of Christianity is obvious and logical. If they acknowledge the claims of Christianity, then they would be obligated to join us. And since people do not want to submit to God outside of God's sovereign changing of their heart, they will not do it. And they revile those who do. One of the hosts of the TV show, The View, which I do not watch, uh, recently said that anyone who claims that Jesus speaks to them is mentally ill. 
Um, this same host said um, that politics and religious belief have no place together. So if you're allowing your religious beliefs to dictate your vote, then you, know, you should have no voice in the public square, according to these hosts. This is just a sample of what we are facing in American culture. And you can see that the, the winds of change are happening quickly, aren't they? What we as Christians will be allowed to do or not do is in question, maybe even in the near future. This is why our prayers for our government and governors are critically important. But the opposition to um, Christianity boils down to opposition to the Christian, to the individual Christian. Um, the world isn't necessarily opposed to anyone calling themselves a Christian as long as they don't claim what Christians in general do. The majority of professing Christians, in fact, don't live in such a way as to incite any negative reaction. The world's only opposed to people who actually live like Christ and believe what he said. And Jesus knew this was coming. Jesus knew that if uh, we believed what he said about himself, if we believe what the Bible says about him, that we would be facing some significant trial and opposition. He said this in his first sermon, Matthew 5, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. So Jesus saw it coming. I mean, Jesus knew the consequences of the words coming out of his mouth. The author of Hebrews suggested to us in Hebrews chapter 11 uh, that Moses, Moses experienced the same kind of reproach for the cause of Christ. In Hebrews chapter 13, we're commanded to join Jesus in his reproach. Um, th this means that if you're going to follow Jesus, if you're going to believe what he said about himself, you, ex you can expect to experience the scorn and contempt that he did. Follow Jesus outside the camp in reproach. And so as Jesus was cast out of the city on the last day of his life and tortured and crucified, we can, be expe we can expect to be tossed out of the world, at least in terms of acceptance um, and, embrace, and experience the same kind of shame that he did, same kind of antagonism he did. You know, friends, our surprise should never be over the fact that we are maligned and bear reproach. Our surprise should be that if we aren't bearing that shame, if we're not maligned, slandered, alienated, we may want to rethink whether or not we are actually trying to fit into the world that rejected Jesus. You know, many verses in the Bible refer to the believer being scorned because of the fact that they follow Christ. Just in the book of Psalms itself, it's filled with these kind of verses, but let me just choose two for you. Psalm 31, 13, for example, says, For I hear the whispering of many. This is the godly man speaking. I hear the whispers of many. Uh, terror on every side as they scheme together against me, as they plot to take my life. And then Psalm 35, 15, but at my stumbling, they rejoined and gathered, they rejoiced and gathered, rather. They gathered together against me, wretches whom I did not know, who tore at me without ceasing. You ever notice this as a Christian? 
that people enjoy it when you fail. Um, this is a concern, isn't it? That your neighbors uh, secretly enjoy it when you blow it, when, they, when you and your spouse have an argument on the back porch and they hear it. What did you hear, the Christian neighbors? You know, um, when, you're, when your kids mess up at school and you, you get called back to the principal's office because your kid's in there again, you know, and this guy's a pastor. Uh, I'm speaking from experience here. <laughs> I had to go rescue my children from worldly principals occasionally. And they love it, it seems like. They love it when we struggle, when we fail. Why? Well, it's because we claim the name of Christ, right? This is what takes place. Now, I want to expand on this a little bit by looking at um, this suffering more closely. So to point number two, opposition and suffering. Look at verse 22 in your Bible. The psalmist says, take away from me scorn and contempt. Why? Because I have kept your testimonies. So the psalmist here is claiming his innocence uh, as he requests of God to take away his trials, his his suffering. You know, many believe, uh, maybe as this psalmist did, that good behavior should garner God's favor. When, when we suffer under unjust circumstances, it seems out of place because we understand justice, right? But, but suffering for poor behavior is expected. When we suffer for doing good, that seems incorrect for some reason. And so as this writer says, God, I, I've, I've been a good boy. Please remove the suffering from me. As if God were Santa Claus, keeping a list of who's naughty and nice so that he can reward them accordingly. To think about this a little bit from a broader theological perspective, uh, we deserve worse than we receive from the world, don't we, in a sense? For the simple reason that sin deserves condemnation. Um, But thanks be to God, we're under his grace and mercy. So when we're suffering for doing well, we should rejoice instead of reciprocating against those who are inflicting that pain. You remember John and Peter when they were preaching the gospel and the religious leaders of the day arrested them, brought them to the Sanhedrin, you know, uh, gave them a talking to and then had them whipped. Um, The first thing they did wasn't run out to the local ACLU office. What did they do? It says they left rejoicing that they were counted worthy of the cause or cross of Christ. That is to be the response of the believer, our response to those times when we're um, unjustly treated. Uh, There are times when Christians suffer under some kind of opposition and claim persecution of some kind. Um, Unjust treatment and persecution is certainly a difficult thing but we need to make sure that our suffering under the world's abuse is not justified for any reason. Um, We should never suffer ill treatment and call it persecution when we deserve it. Um, I know Christians who talk or act in such a way that invites ridicule, scorn, and alienation. Um, My grandpa used to tell me, um, John, if you deserve a beating, you should probably get one. 
And I think a lot of times uh, there's Christians who deserve what they get when it comes to being maligned. They want to argue with anyone who will about liberal or conservative politics under the name of righteousness. They act socially awkward and call it being separate. They defend the name of Christ when no defense is necessary or even when no offense has been committed. Nevertheless, because we know the Bible and we've been alive long enough, we realize that suffering is real, isn't it, for those who do right. Um, and it is a heavy burden when that takes place. Uh, Hebrews 11 says this, others, speaking of Christians who were suffering, suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. Why? Because they stood for the cause of Christ. That's why. And then in Galatians 4, but just at that time, uh, he who was born according to the flesh, that was Ishmael, persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, Isaac. And now look at that next phrase. So also it is now. So this isn't new, Paul is saying to the Galatian readers. This was going on back with Ishmael and Isaac. If you, if you want to pursue holiness, if you want to follow Christ, if you want to be a man or woman of God, you're going to catch it, simply said. And the reason that and this, this creates a heavy burden, the reason it's heavy is because our name is involved in the discussion. And no one wants to be considered something other than they're not. Being slandered is, is difficult to anyone, and much less those who are innocent. And being mistreated is an injustice. Ecclesiastes speaks of this, says a good name is better than precious ointment. We value what people think of us. And so when they say things that are untrue, it's, it's difficult. It's a heavy burden to bear. Um, and back to verse 22, he says, for I have kept your testimonies. God, remove this from me because I've kept your testimonies. The psalmist was innocent, and yet he suffered. His name was being drugged through the mud. And it's a heavy burden. But it's also a heavy burden because God's name is shamed. And isn't this infinitely more important? God's name is shamed. You know, when, when the godly are slandered for their godliness, God is slandered. But when God's name is slandered because of our poor behavior, even as Christians, I think we've brought about a double dishonor. This was the case with the, with the children of Israel. In Ezekiel, uh, God speaks through the prophet to the people of Israel and says this, but when they came, that is the Israelites or the Jews, when they came to the nations, wherever they came, they profaned my holy name. Wherever they showed up, they blew it. Is that your situation? Is that what happens? I mean, does, does the PTA hate it when you show up to the meetings? <laughs> or when you show up to the kids' soccer game? Does, does the rest of the parents go, oh, no, you know? Um, wow. If we're supposed to do everything for the glory of God and we don't, then the shame that takes place is on us appropriately. 
But we are to do everything to the glory of God, aren't we? Um, and when we do, and people disparage us because of that, because of doing right, then they're disparaging God, not us. We are children of God. This is what the author John said in his first epistle. He said, see what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, because that's what we are. Um, and then Paul to Timothy that all who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. So what do we see here? We see that there's a connection between our behavior and God's reputation. You know, how many people fail in uh, or do not come to church because of something that we have done, that I have done? That should, should cause us at least introspection. But as Christians, we do carry a heavy burden when we deal with this kind of abuse and mistreatment. But it shouldn't be a surprise to us, should it? I mean, this is mentioned to us in numerous, you know, a few times, numerous, and even in um, Peter's first epistle. It's expected. He said this, for to you, this you have been called. What we, what's we've been called to? Suffering. He says, this you've been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his footsteps. A lot of people say, I want to be like, I want to be like Jesus. I want to be Christ-like. Really? He, he wasn't treated all that well. You sure you want to be Christ-like? He was abused. Let's look at opposition in Christ. Now, I want to... I wanna, uh, here specifically tie in Psalm 119 verses 22 through 24 to this Palm Sunday, to the triumphal entry and the week that ensued that. I, I want you to turn your attention now for a second, <clears throat> more uh, Christward, uh, and consider the words of Psalm 119 in relation to the words of Matthew 21 that were read earlier to us about Jesus' entry into Jerusalem and the things that happened from that moment forward to his crucifixion. All right, Psalm 119, bring it forward to Holy Week. Psalm 119, take away from me scorn and contempt, for I have kept your testimonies. Even though princes sit plotting against me, your servant will meditate on your Statutes, your testimonies are my delight, they are my counselors. Um, you see, Jesus endured this, what I just read for you. Scorn, contempt, alienation, isolation. Je Jesus in, uh, endured false accusation of blasphemy, false accusation of rebellion, he endured the scorn of religious leaders of his day, verse 23. He was held in contempt, verse 22. He physically suffered through the beatings and torture and ultimately was killed on a cross, all prescribed by the princes of his day in Jerusalem. The apostle Peter, who watched all this, said this to his readers. When Jesus was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued to entrust himself to him who judges justly. 
Friend, if there was ever a time to meditate on the suffering Christ, it's this week, isn't it? Um, so I would encourage you, if you would, to put in your calendar our Good Friday service, which is this Friday at 7 p.m. in this room. Invite a friend and attend. And when you do, you will hear about the scorn and contempt and mistreatment of Christ. And you will see um, from the scriptures all that Christ endured for us. And as solemn as that, that occasion needs to be and is, there's an underlying, underlying overwhelming joy, isn't there? You know, sometimes we've asked you to leave the room in quietness and, and as, as redeemed people, it's hard to do, isn't it? Especially in view of his sufferings for us. You can't help but talk about it and rejoice in it. But we have a, a week before us that we remember the passion of Christ. It's Passion Week. And it began with a great celebration in Jerusalem. And during that week, the mood of the people drastically changed because of the insidious work of those evil religious leaders. Uh, and by the end of the week, of course, he was ridiculed, scorned, accused of blasphemy, rebellion, arrested, severely beaten, crucified in a matter of four days. Um, but in case you want to take this as a tragedy, I want to remind you it's called Good Friday. Think of that. To the world, that's the most inappropriate name. The, the celebration of the torture and crucifixion of your leader, what is the matter with you people? It's Good Friday because of what God accomplished on that day. It, it was all part of God's infinitely wise and loving plan that was put together before time began. It was all carefully orchestrated in eternity past for the glory of Christ and for the joy of his people. There was no other way to accomplish what we have and what we have to look forward to other than what happened in that Passion Week. Calvary and the week leading up to it are the high point of the eternal plan of God. I've tried to picture this from the view of heaven looking down on planet Earth and, and the, what was going on there in Jerusalem in that week. The Father, with all the angels beside him and all the saints who, have, who had gone into his presence before Jesus' birth, I can just see them on the edge of their seat, standing on their tiptoes maybe, looking onto the planet, seeing what is taking place. The promise is happening. It was, it was a, a time of solemn sorrow, uh, of, of great concern over the, the sinfulness of mankind, and yet even in heaven, or I should say mostly in heaven, we had, I am certain, all sorts of godly, joyous anticipation of what was about to take place in the suffering of the God of the universe. 
This suffering, of course, was necessary primarily for our salvation, but also for our instruction in Christ-likeness. You see, friends, we don't become Christ-like unless we walk like Christ. We don't become Christ-like by having everything handed to us and having a life of ease and comfort. We see Christ-likeness come as a result of walking as Christ did. And it's in his walk of shame on earth, in heaven it was a walk of glory, we see the glory of Christ suffering. It's magnificent. Friends, I, I, I want to remind you, it is a solemn week that we, we celebrate, but it is a celebration. It's a solemn time, but it is a joyful time. Listen to the sufferings once again from Philippians 2 and all that Christ went through to accomplish our salvation and his glory. Having this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Oh, what suffering. The God of heaven, who had everything at his disposal, condescended to this for us. Philippians 2, 9 tells us of the glory of this. You might say, when you stop at verse 8, how can this be glorious? Well, God evidently thought it was glorious. He said this, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, and that's not by the way of the name Jesus, it's the name Lord, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and, every, and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You see, Jesus' sufferings and crucifixion is a glorious thing. And this strikes the world as odd. But in, the, in our hearts, the Christian knows it's true, don't you? This is why Jesus, after he had risen from the dead, was walking along this road to a town called Emmaus with two of his disciples. And he says this in Luke 24. Was it not necessary that Christ should suffer these things and then enter his glory? It's not called the glory of heaven, but his glory as a savior. The glory is this, this, is, this is the glory that only came from his suffering. We, we read of, of this strange thing, glory from suffering in Hebrews. We read of it in, in Luke. We read of it in John. We read of it in Paul's writings. The Apostle John, who was there during that week and watched it all unfold, says this in his first chapter of his epic gospel. And the Word became flesh. God became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Some people say, well, he was there when Jesus was transfigured. He's not talking about the transfiguration. He's talking about Calvary. 
We saw the glory of Christ unfold before our eyes while he was mistreated and ultimately killed on a cross. How can the suffering God be glorious? That wouldn't have been my plan if I were in charge of things. So, in the wisdom of God, how can sending of his son, his only son, the creator of the universe, be a glorious thing to watch him suffer and die? Well, I want to share with you a couple of ideas. First of all, what he went through was of his own free choice. Jesus willingly submitted himself to the law of his father. Jesus willingly came to do the will of God. And what was the will of God? To die for the sins of his people. This is why Jesus said in John 12, this is why I have come. His willing obedience to God's demand to suffer was not for himself. He didn't need to add something to his resume to qualify him for more glory. The reason that he came to suffer was to save your soul. A suffering Savior is glorious. And if there's anybody who who should recognize it, it's a sinner in need of one. You see, friends, we are obligated to obey God's law, but we cannot. The second person of the Godhead, Jesus Christ, was not obligated to the law of God except by free act of his own will, and he did it completely. Jesus also obeyed in the face of all the difficulties and sufferings joyfully. You think, well, how much joy was going on in Jesus' heart and mind when he was being beaten and killed, literally having spikes driven into his wrists while he hung there in unbelievable agony. Couldn't have been joyful, right? I'm certain he was joyful. I'm certain he was in pain, but I'm certain he was joyful. In fact, the Bible tells us he was joyful. It says, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. He was probably demonstrating what humans do when intense pain is inflicted upon them. But his heart was overflowing with joy because of what that pain was accomplishing. It's almost, I might get in trouble here, but it's almost like the joy of a mother giving birth, right? I mean, I was there on all three of, of the births of our children, and after, about halfway through the first one, I said, that's it, no more of this. It was not fun, and I don't mean to scare you ladies who haven't had children yet, um, but the joy in the midst of that pain made you push on, right? Ladies, at least that's what Sherry tells me. Um, I was there as a cheerleader and as 
you know, one of the things that ducks gets out of the way of things, you know, flying objects in the room. But um, for the joy of what he was accomplishing, Christ endured his suffering. And what he accomplished is, is being demonstrated in this room right now. You're here rejoicing in what he did. And his suffering accomplished only what God could accomplish. Friends, this is a glorious Savior who suffered these things. And only he, as God, could accomplish it. No amount of your good works, of your good behavior, of your sacrificial giving, no amount of anything that you can do could accomplish what Jesus did on that day with the sacrifice of his own life. That's why the suffering of Christ is glorious. This is why Paul wrote, after laying out this amazing gospel that I've just shared with you in much greater and more profound detail, he says this in Romans eleven thirty three. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable is his ways. We don't even know the half of it, friends. But we have eternity to, to discover all the things that Christ is for us. Now, I want to close with this last point, opposition in Christ-likeness. And before I get into the, the explaining what I mean here, I just want to give you a word about this uh, scorn and contempt and antagonism that we've read of here in Psalm 119. I want, I want, to, be, want to just exhort you as Christians to be careful not to be the source of these things in the lives of other Christians. You know, sadly, uh, that the, the truth seems to be that most of scorn and contempt that Christians endure come from within the walls. <laughs> it comes from other Christians. And I, and I want to just exhort you in that regard and encourage you as a church, as your pastor, to be careful not to be the source of those things, to guard your tongues, to be careful when speaking about a brother or sister in any way that might bring about a burden to them. Um, it's, it's difficult enough to hear scorn and contempt from the secular world, but when you receive it from a fellow brother and sister, it's doubly painful, isn't it? So as, as, as a church, Sun Valley Church, let's work hard at that. But is there anything good in this? I mean, obviously our salvation is what I've just described, a result of the suffering of our Savior. But I'm, I'm talking about our suffering. Is there anything good in this? Uh, I mean, do we work hard just so we can build up calluses on our hands? What's the point of going through trials and difficulties and the things I've been describing? Uh, how, how does God use the trials in our lives to accomplish his purposes? 
Well, what is his purpose in our life? Maybe that would be a good place to start. His purpose is seen in, in Romans chapter 8, verse 29. He has predestined us to be conformed to the image of his son. That's, again, back to the Christ-likeness thing. He's predestined us to become like Jesus. And the only way you become like Jesus is walking where Jesus walked. If you think that you can um, ignore the life of Christ and get out from underneath what he experienced and still become like him, you're a fool. <laughs> it's not going to happen. We need to go through what Jesus went through to become like Jesus. It's a part of being like Jesus. Was he scorned and held in contempt? Then, then we will be too. If anyone didn't deserve that treatment, he didn't. So when we don't deserve it, we shouldn't be surprised. This is what it means to be like Jesus. When you encounter this kind of treatment, you can remember what Jesus endured for you. And the best way to endure the trials that you experience is to do joyfully as Jesus did. Trusting in his heavenly father as Jesus did. Opening his word and, and reading what we can about this savior of ours, this glorious savior of ours, and what we can expect in becoming like him. Verse 24, back to Psalm 119, your testimonies are my delight, they are my counselors. What, are, what, what do we need in, in this life of, of, of suffering and trial that we face? We need, we need comfort. Where do we get comfort? From counselors. And we just read here, the word of God is our counselor. Where do, you, where do you get peace in the midst of turmoil when it's unjust? Well, that's what the word delight means. Your testimony are my delight. I'm at peace when I'm in your word. So our first response to experiencing the things that are difficult is not to react or get back at or to run to Facebook and tell everybody about the things you're suffering, but to go to the word of God. You might, you might say, Pastor John, I really don't experience this kind of treatment. I don't know what you're talking about. I don't, I, I don't suffer. I got a great life. No one's, no one's accusing me of things they shouldn't. And I, I will say this to you. If you live for Jesus in the way he lived for you, you will suffer. If you live for Jesus in the way he lived for you, you will suffer. When you stand up for God and his word, it's not going to be met with open arms in our culture. So God uses opposition for his purposes. The Apostle Peter knew firsthand what it meant to go through difficulties and how God used them to shape and form him. And he said this in his first epistle, chapter 2, 23. When Jesus was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued to entrust himself to one who judges justly. Do we do that? Jesus trusted his heavenly Father. We must do the same. So I think a great step in your spiritual growth is to acknowledge that God is overseeing your suffering. Are you trusting him in the midst of your trials? Whatever they are. To be able to step back and recognize that God is using your suffering for your good and his glory 
And to do so with a thankful, joyful spirit is a sign of spiritual maturity. It's a sign of becoming like Jesus. He uses our sufferings to refine us, to, to shape our affections, to bring about Christ-likeness. And one way he does that is, is by humbling us with this stuff. I mean, last week I preached to you from verse 21 and dealt with the, the sin of pride. And we saw last week that pride interrupts so much of our Christian life, beginning with our relationship with God and then relationships with each other. Sin interrupts that stuff. Pride interrupts that relation, those relationships. Um, and so God wants to deal with pride. How does God deal with pride? He exposes it. How does he expose it? A lot of times through slander and scorn and contempt that we receive unjustly. I don't deserve what you're saying to me, so I'm going to defend myself. Pride. Right? God exposes it right there. When you experience some form of slander that affects your reputation, um, your response reveals the, the progress of your faith. Um, do you get defensive when so someone says something about you, if it's untrue or true? Do you have to set the record straight, make sure everybody knows I'm legit still? What they said is wrong, just want you all to know that. I don't like, you know, that, what they said, or whatever. Do you, do you remember how David reacted to the slander of Shimei when David was running for his life out of Jerusalem, away from his son Absalom? Well, David was on the run for his life, on the way out of Jerusalem. A guy named Shimei was standing up on the hill and just bombing him with insults and curses and uh, horrible things. And one of David's mighty men, who was armed, said, King David, should I go up there and cut his head off? And he could have, like that. And David said, no, maybe God sent him to deal with my pride. Has someone disparaged you in some way, shape, or form? Wrongly? What's your response to them? Has someone said something negative about one of the gifts that God's given you? Maybe God's given you the gift of teaching or given you the gift of service. And someone says something that's unfair, uh, that, that demonstrates that they don't appreciate the gift that you're using. What's your response to that? Well, evidently, they're not paying attention. I'm a great teacher. You know, you've got some comment, some response that demonstrates or opens up the heart, doesn't it? It exposes sin. And so God, through the Holy Spirit, actually works through false accusations, slander, and all these things that we've been talking about this morning to expose sin so that you'll deal with it and walk with Christ. Trust the Heavenly Father. Joyfully submit to Him in what He's doing. 2 Corinthians, Paul said this to his readers. To keep me from being conceited, and the Apostle Paul had many reasons to be conceited, prideful. 
Because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from being conceited. We don't know what that thorn was. It could have been a physical ailment, could have been a, uh, an individual. But who sent it? God did. Why? To protect the Apostle Paul from pride. You see, God allows and sends, orchestrates, controls every ounce of mistreatment we experience. There's nothing that gets past him. Oh, shoot, I wish that wouldn't have been said. No, it doesn't happen in God's economy. He, he sends us to shake us out of complacency, to, to get us off of our self-sufficiency, to, to wipe out pride that keeps us from a... a significant relationship with himself and with each other. And so when you're faced with discouragement over some kind of suffering or mistreatment, it usually causes you to examine yourself and it will, by God's design, draw you to Christ in dependence on him. So you can thank God for it and joyfully endure it, just like Jesus did, because of what it's accomplishing. He also uses suffering to test us. Where are you in your spiritual life? Do you know? Well, when you encounter difficulty, you'll find out, won't you? That always exposes us. So God uses it for that reason. Again, Paul to the, to the Corinth church says this in his second book, second letter rather, chapter 10, verse 18. For it is not the one who commends himself who is approved, but the one who the Lord commends. You know, it really doesn't matter what other people are saying. You can take it or leave it, doesn't matter. What matters is what God thinks, right? And so all the, all the things that you endure wrongly, these, these unjust comments or treatment that you receive, uh, that doesn't affect God in his view of you. How do you know if you're gonna endure under these things? Go through it, that's how. Does a little hardship or verbal abuse put you under? If so, then the test has proven its point. Will you hold your course when faced with trial, slander, difficulty? Listen to how Paul dealt with these things in his life. And we labor working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. Test passed. When persecuted, we endure. Test passed. So God uses these things to test us also, but he also uses them primarily to improve us, to sanctify us, to purify us, to strengthen us for his glory, for his work, for our good, for the benefit of those sitting around you. You know why God puts me through things? It's so that you'll benefit. It's the same reason he puts you through things, so that I'll benefit. You become sweeter when you go through difficulty. You know how they get juice out of grapes? That's how. It gets smashed. And then we enjoy grape juice or wine. That's how it happens. And so it's the same with us, friends. The only way that you're going to be a blessing to the people around you if God takes you through hard times. It's for their joy just as much as yours. It says this in 2 Corinthians for the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, calamities, 
all this difficult stuff, for when I'm weak, I'm strong. So we invite it, right? We, 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 we don't shy away from it. We don't do everything we can to get out of it. We embrace the things that God brings our way. And we pray. Psalm 109.4, in return for my love, they accused me. They, they treated me wrong. What was the psalmist's response? What did he do? I'll tell you what. No. I give myself to prayer. So prayer is the best response to slander, contempt, and scorn. But God uses all these things to challenge the sojourner's life, to draw them into prayer, communion with himself, dependency, to get them to the place of joy where they're actually a benefit to the others in the church. C.H. Spurgeon said this, the best way to deal with slander is to pray about it. God will either remove it or remove the sting from it. O ye who are reproached, take your matters before the highest court and leave them with the judge of all the earth. God will rebuke your proud accuser, but ye be quiet and let your advocate plead your case or your cause. Let's pray. Lord, We're so thankful that you're in charge of our lives and not ourselves. That you have a design laid out before each of us that includes difficulty and hardship, trial, failure, um, all for good purposes. I ask that now as we consider the life of Christ and and remember his his saving work uh, during his week of passion, that we might reflect on all his struggle and hardship and trial for our salvation and determine to walk with him. Determine to grab hold of Christ and walk with him through our difficulties. God, we're so grateful what Christ has accomplished on Calvary. We're so grateful that he has determined by his suffering to glorify himself and save us needy sinners. I pray that there be one person in the room today that does not know Christ, who is yet trying to accomplish their own purposes, who is yet trying to live by their own will and their own agenda, that they would throw themselves on Christ with all of their baggage and depend upon the promises given to us in Scripture. Depend upon the promise of forgiveness of sin for those who will turn from their own. Depend upon the promise of salvation to all who will embrace Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. God, I pray that you'll do that today for anyone in this room who has yet to do that. And for those who are following, I pray that you'll strengthen them for the things they face, that they will walk with Christ faithfully, joyfully, submissively trusting in him. We bless you, Father, for the gift of your Son, Jesus, our Savior. It's in his name we pray, amen.